Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try to sell that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? Savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations, that really turned out well. I'm a really good job. I'm really, really, I'm surprised. You know, I wish I'd thought of that. I never thought anyone would How did you do that? I'm so glad you're here to your I wish I had the courage to follow my friends. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting here on WLCB 101.5 FM from the greater Chicago-Milwaukee area. If you are or want to be an entrepreneur, this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a serial entrepreneur myself, and I've counseled lots of startups and businesses over the past 30 years. I've seen a lot of mistakes. I've made plenty of them myself. The show has two goals, to share helpful information and resources and to inspire, to hopefully make your journey as an entrepreneur just a little bit faster and easier, and maybe just a little bit more fun. To help with that, I have guests every week on the show who are willing to share their stories and advice. And this week, I'm lucky enough to have not one, but two guests on the show. With me by phone are Andy Walker and Chris Ekstrom, the co-founders and partners of Rock River Capital. Rock River Capital is a venture capital firm focused on early-stage investments. Uh, For for those of you who know the the jingo, it's uh, seed investments to B rounds. And they're investing in startups based in the Midwest with a focus especially on investing in Wisconsin. They're industry agnostic, but they look for disruptors in the industry. And we'll hear more about that, I'm sure, from both of them. Andy, one of the two co-founders, lives in Stoughton, Wisconsin, and prior to founding Rock River Capital, he was the CEO of Channel IQ, which was a leading provider of channel management solutions for e-commerce, which was later then acquired by MarketTrack. Previously, he helped build Fetch Rewards, a successful startup based in Wisconsin. He's also the co-founder of 426 Solutions which was acquired by Computer Sciences Corporation, where after the acquisition, he became Vice President General Manager of Big Data. He also worked for the National Security Agency, something that he found very interesting but can't really talk about. For those of you who don't know, the NSA is the parallel agency of the CIA. It's the largest intelligence arm of the Department of Justice, and he says that he spent five of his six years there working overseas. He has an MBA from the Kellogg School of Business at Northwestern, a master's in engineering and systems engineering from the Stevens Institute of Technology, and a bachelor's in computer science from UW-Madison. Now, Chris, the other co-founder, lives in the Madison area after moving from Chicago, where he lived for many years. He previously ran the principal investment team of the Macquarie Bank in Chicago, And prior to that, he was a senior analyst at Black Diamond Capital Management, a hedge fund based in Lake Forest, Illinois, for those of you who don't know, is a northern suburb of Chicago. He's a graduate of the UW-Madison in both finance and economics and is a board member of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Dane County. And he also says he has three small kids and now uh, lives in the Madison area. So, uh, with that introduction, Chris and Andy, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Hey, thanks yeah. a lot for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for joining us. I, I think the place to start this natural is really to talk about Rock River Capital in general. So, how and why did it get started? Why did you decide to do this? Well, I'll start with this one and Chris can kind of jump in. But when I graduated in computer science, there was really not a lot of opportunities in the state of Wisconsin. I was essentially forced to kind of lead the state for the career I wanted. And, you know, later on in life, I really wanted to figure out how to create those same opportunities in the Midwest. At the same time, a lot of really good things were happening in Wisconsin, things like Epic and Exact Science and all these great companies 
were starting to take off and now there was now a market for this, these technology companies that didn't exist before. And it just felt like, you know, a timing was, was in our favor. So Chris had recently, you know, moved back to the Midwest and he was, he moved back to Wisconsin. So I called him up and said, Hey, I'm really thinking about doing this venture capital fund. I need an institutional investor like yourself. Would you be interested at all? And Chris was interested. So I'll let him take it from here. Yeah, I think the other thing too, when, when I moved back and I spent the first year, you know, I, I was on the road quite a bit working for big investment banks and hedge funds and, you know, saw, saw a real solid opportunity in, in Madison, uh, in Wisconsin then to, uh, to put money to work in, in the VC space, specifically looking kind of to do that second round of capital, put, put a million dollars in, in startup companies. There really wasn't anybody doing that. And, and I saw Andy's background as a huge, a huge plus and a huge advantage for a, a venture capital fund and also help create companies and, and, and get them off the ground and get them up and running. Yeah, it's really kind of shocking how little capital, at least in the past, has flown into the mid has flowed into the Midwest. Um, I, I one of my guests was sharing with me what a huge percentage of capital actually goes to Silicon Valley and Boston and a few other places and really a shockingly small amount to other places in the country, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, what is it, 50% or something massive goes to Silicon Valley by itself. So even if you ignored every other city and you just looked at Silicon Valley by itself, I mean, by far uh, the most capital goes there. Um, but, I mean, if you look at it, you know, most of the venture capital funds are in Silicon Valley. They're investing in their own backyard. Um, and that's what we're trying to do as well. Um, you know, I think that there's some, some great shining lights. I mean, we all know the statistics on, on the amount of capital that gets invested in those big cities you already, you already brought up. But, you know, look at something like Drive Capital in Ohio. I think they're just one of the best examples of good things going on in the Midwest. These are two ex Sequoia partners from Silicon Valley that said, Hey, there's opportunity in the Midwest. The next great companies are going to be born here. You know, if you believe in kind of the Steve Case's third wave concept. And, you know, that that's one of the most successful funds in the country right now. I mean, they're just phenomenal. So you can do this in the Midwest. I think it just takes a different approach. I think you need to bring that Silicon Valley approach to the Midwest in some cases. And, and I think that's what Drive Capital's done. And, and on a much smaller scale, that's what Chris and I are trying to do. I think we looked at Wisconsin. I mean, there's, you know, Andy mentioned there's Epic and Exact Sciences, but there's also a great foundation of, of entrepreneurs. If you think of some of the companies like Menards and, SC Johnson, oh. and, you know, those companies are, were started by entrepreneurs and, and Wisconsin's got a great entrepreneur culture. And, and we saw, you know, the UW Madison system or UW system, UW Madison, Marquette, Wharf. There's, there's various things that generate a lot of intellectual capital and ideas and that also attract talent. We just sort of saw that as a, as an advantage for the fund that, that can help us be successful, create companies, help, uh, help drive successful companies and, and exits. Well, I want to circle back to the personal side of the story of Rock River Capitals. I'm curious, how did the two of you even meet? I mean, Andy, you were in Stoughton and Chris was in Chicago. How did, how did your paths ever even cross to begin with? Yeah, we actually met each other in college. So Chris was a senior when I was a freshman. We've known each other for decades at this point. We had very different kind of interests and backgrounds in college. You know, Chris was more of the, the finance guy. He was in the business school. I uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to major in, to be honest. And later I got into computer science and I ended up graduating in computer science. And we went different paths, you know, with our careers, but we always stayed in touch. I always had a great respect for, for what Chris did. And it was always fascinating to get together with him and learn about, you know, his life in a hedge fund. And, and anyways, we always just kept in touch. We'd get together, you know, every year or two and, and chat. And then our careers both kind of led us back to Wisconsin, you know. And, and when we got back here, you know, both by choice, we could have stayed, you know, in Chicago and I could have stayed on the East Coast. But we wanted to come back. And when we came back, again, we kind of reconnected and, and said, what do we want to do now? So we've had a great friendship for a long time. And I got a ton of respect, you know, for his background. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, it just, you know, it, it just made sense. We, we got together and we said, Hey, what, what can we do? What can we build? What and I've always been in sort of an run opportunistic hedge funds and special situations hedge funds. And like I said, it just seemed like the, the time was ripe, right? And uh, the opportunity is ripe to, to start something, start a, a venture capital fund in Madison, raise some capital and, and, and also, you know, build the ecosystem. It's now that we're, 
we're both in Madison. It's a relatively, you know, small, and I think it's a great, great size town, but, you know, it, it could definitely use guys like us with our, with our connections from, from outside the state to help build the ecosystem and create something great. I think the other thing that was part of this is just the stage of life that Chris and I were at too. I mean, we both were lucky enough to have a couple of wins and when you can't just decide you want to do a venture capital fund one day, you got to put some skin in the game. So, you know, Chris and I have over half a million bucks each into this thing. So we needed to show our investors how much we believed in this. And the only way to do that was to put significant skin in the game. And the only way to do that was to to have had some wins prior to this. So there was also a timing you know, both of us were at a stage of life. We both wanted to do this. The things just aligned. Well, you've just segued perfectly into my next question, which was really about getting started. I mean, you know, there's probably lots of people who think, wouldn't it be great to run a venture capital fund? But, you know, kind of the gap between the idea and actually putting one together is <laughs> Probably yeah. a bigger gap than most people think. Talk about some of the challenges and things that you were prepared for and things you weren't prepared for. Chris, why don't you start? Well, I guess, you know, I, I was lucky enough. You know, I, I'd worked for Macquarie and, and Black Diamond, two institutional investors. Um, I'd been part of the fundraising effort and had sort of done this before and had had an idea of the process. So, so I think, you know, that helped a lot as well. I think one of the big challenges we both had is, you know, I was sort of in Chicago and Andy was in Chicago and DC and, and we really didn't have great, didn't have a, a ton of connections to the, to the Madison and Milwaukee and, and Southern Wisconsin area. So that was, it was probably, you know, the biggest challenge was sort of trying to network and find the people who um, could invest, could be limited partners in our fund. Um, and, and how did you find additional investors and how do you find additional investors to the fund because obviously a million bucks between the two of you is a great starting point but you need you need to leverage that right so how did you go about doing that Andy why well, don't you yeah I mean really the idea was let's start with an anchor right we need a couple of anchors and we can build around that so we really need to go out and find some of the larger investors first. That was that was our strategy. Um, so the largest of those investors was, um, you know, the Badger Fund of Funds, the state of Wisconsin program. So, you know, we we went and met with uh, Ken Johnson and we kind of pitched our case on, on what we want to do. And, and he believed in, in us personally and in the uh, investment thesis. And uh, and he was our first anchor. And from there, we went around to a couple of other large institutional investors and um, and then, you know, went to kind of high net worth and family office. So we, we kind of started with the anchor investors and worked our way out. And I think we also really just had to learn a lot about um, the marketplace as well. One of the things we learned early on, um, I think it was one of our very first meetings, actually, and uh on the, the limited partner we were talking to said, if you were going to, if I gave you all this money today, tell me the first three companies you would invest in. Oh. And I didn't have a, I didn't have a really good answer for him. And he said, well, tell me about the, who, what are the best three companies right now in Wisconsin that you would invest in? And I listed off a bunch of good companies and, and, but I didn't really have a good answer. So then Chris and I went back and we said, you know what? We can't spend all of our time fundraising, even though we don't have any money. We have to go spend a significant amount of our time with the companies out there that are raising capital so that when we go talk to these LPs, we can give them very specific examples of companies right now that we like that we would put money to work in. So right. when we when we had that when we had that first horrible meeting, we essentially started we changed how we spent our time. We started spending half our time with entrepreneurs and, and young companies and figuring out what the challenges were, what was going well, what companies did we like, what companies did we did we not, you know, love from an investment standpoint? And uh, that really helped us in our fundraising process. We had very specific examples. We could talk about tangible companies. And I really think that that resonated well with, with the people we were talking to. Interesting. Well, you know, it's funny because you hear stories on the reverse side, right, of people, uh, entrepreneurs who are pitching to folks just like you, and the stories are, are, are legion out there of investors. They try to get a call. They try to set up a meeting with you. And then uh, they get you actually on the phone 
and they think that they're going to set up a time later. And, you know, a lot of times uh, investors like you are just like, hey, I got a couple minutes right now. Sell me, sell me on investing in your company. <laughs> they, don't, they don't know what to say, right? So it's pretty yeah, we, funny we can, to hear it on we, the flip can, side that can happen too. We can, we can definitely relate. I mean, I think we, we ended up having 300 plus meetings with potential investors in our fund. I think we ended up getting about 50 of them. So, you know, it was a, I don't know, one in seven, one in eight hit rate. Um, it's, it's definitely tough. And if you think of we're, we're raising money for a fund, um, sort of an idea, a, a thesis we have, not necessarily a specific product. Um, so, you know, I thought, I thought it was, it was quite daunting and it was, uh, you know, something I'm, I'm really proud of. We ended up raising $26.475 million from, like I said, I think there was 49 or, or 50, uh, different entities. Um, and that was, that was a challenge. You know, it, there was some times where we thought it would be, uh, you know, I don't know, didn't, didn't know if we could get it done. And, and at the end of the day, we, we persisted and um, showed grit. And I think that's, you know, similar to, to the companies that are raising capital. They need to have the same persistence and grit and sort of not take no for an answer and, and just believe in yourself and that you can get things done and, and make things happen. Yeah, I suspect that most entrepreneurs pitching to investors like you probably have no idea of how much how much empathy there really is because it's, you, you know, it just, it's a circular process. All right. So tell me about some of the com- kinds of companies that you're looking for. So as part of the yeah. process, you really honed what you were looking for and how you were pitching to your own investors. What kind of companies are you looking for? Who's a good fit for Rock River Capital? Yeah, I'll take this one. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, we're looking for we're looking for companies that have a growth rate that makes sense for venture capital. So this is a really hard concept, I think, for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. But venture capital is one of the riskiest forms of investment. Right. So um, you need a return to justify that risk. So we tell this to our you know, when we meet with entrepreneurs all the time, we say, look, our investors are expecting us, you know, to return, you know, three to five times this fund, we need 10x a return on, on, on our investments in each company. So when we look at your software company, what we're looking at is will this thing, when we put in a million dollars, will we get 10 million out, right? That's the mentality we have to go in. And we understand that not every one of our companies is going to work. We're going to have, um, you know, a significantly high failure rate in the venture capital space. So because of that, the companies that do win have to win big. So when we look at your company and you you show us that there's a 10% return for us and you're going to double the size of the company, that's not big enough, you know. And, and this is a really hard concept to get past because I don't want to discourage people from going to create those companies. Those are great companies. Those are lifestyle businesses that can do really well and can make the entrepreneur extremely happy. But what they won't do is they won't make our investors happy. They won't make our fund and unfortunately, we can't invest in those. So the number one thing that we are investing in is high growth. And the only way to get high growth is large markets. So the best advice I think I was given was from Drive Capital, actually. And they asked me, they said, what is the one thing you can't change when you look at a company? When you're looking at companies, what's the one thing that you have to have out of the gate that you can't change? And, you know, I think my response was, well, the entrepreneur, you know, it's got to be a great entrepreneur. They said, no, that's not true. You can go get a new CEO. You can go change the personnel. And I said, okay, well, then it's got to be a great product. It's got to be, you know, the product's just got to wow me and it's got to be great. I said, well, that's not true either. You can go fix the product. You can go hire, you know, new developers or you can go essentially go pivot the company and change the product. I said, well, great. If it's not those two, then what is it? And they said, it's the, uh, it's the market size. If they are not going after a billion dollar market size, you're never going to get the return you need for your investors. You have to enter a large market. So if, if I see an entrepreneur that's showing me a product that has a total addressable market of 50 million, we're out. It's too small. If it's a hundred million, we're probably out. It's too small. So I have to be shooting for big markets that we can do disruptive things in large markets. Disruptive things in small markets will not work for us. It's funny you say that because when you're an entrepreneur first starting out, 
and you're just looking for a few sales. I mean, an addressable market of 50 million just sounds so huge that, you know. I know. I know. It's counterintuitive. It's, it's, it's really hard for you know, us to have this conversation. But that, that, yeah. that could be that could be a great business. That could be a great business for you know Andy mentioned a lifestyle business, but you know a fifty million dollar market opportunity, you know that that's great for somebody who starts a business that has one to two, three, four, five million dollars in revenue. That's you know that generates great income for an entrepreneur. Um, it just does it makes it tough to invest in it from a, a venture capital standpoint from a venture capital well, fund. Uh, all right, so I have to ask though. When you say an addressable market, I mean, here's something that it seems to me there's maybe some misconceptions or at least a lot of wiggle room. So, you know, I've talked to entrepreneurs who have this this enormous idea of what the marketplace potentially is, number one. And query, is that really, you know, are they really right about that? I mean, you could say... You know, potentially the market for Kleenex is huge, but really what part of the market are you going to be able to get to? And second, you got to have some way of breaking into some of these markets. Either it's changing an existing fairly mature market or it's a brand new market where people don't even know there's a need yet. So talk about how you figure out what the market really is. Well, I think the best example I can give was, you know, when I was at Channel IQ. So I was pitching a group of investors, Channel IQ. I was trying to raise money for that business. And and I did not found that company. I was a new CEO that came into that company. They'd already raised maybe $20 million prior to me getting there. And I was struggling to figure out our market size. So prior to going and meeting with this group of investors, I had done this kind of top-down approach. Look, there's trillions of dollars going into e-commerce, it's growing, you know, e-commerce is growing by, you know, 10, 20% year over year. It's going to be massive. And the investor looked at me and said, well, what's your average deal size? And I said, well, our average deal size is $32,000 a year. He goes, great. So how many people are there out there for you to sell $32,000 a year on average to? And I said, well, you know, I started counting and, you know, kind of said, uh, I think there's about a hundred of these. And he goes, okay, so I just did the math. He goes, your market size, according to your math, is only about $75 million. And I said, oh, <laughs> so that's the great, that, but, but that was a great, that was a great meeting because what that taught me was that your, your total addressable market's really simple. Figure out your average deal size and figure out how many people you can sell it to and multiply the two together. So that, that's how you, that's the easiest way to come up with your, with your total addressable market. What, what you talked about before was how do you get those first deals and how do you, how do you start selling into that market, right? So once you figure out, you know, kind of how many people there are to sell to, you got to figure out a way to segment them and figure out where you're going to start, right? So in an ideal world, you segment, you know, let's just take channel IQ for as an example. If you look at that business, we had a couple of clients that spent a million dollars a year with us. We had a couple of clients that spent 12,000 a year with us. And there's a bunch in the middle and the average came out to 32,000. So it follows common sense. Well, the easiest way for me to ideally break in this market is go get some million dollar deals, right? Like that's going to be the fastest way for me to, to kind of grow here. So, and the answer is kind of somewhere in the middle, right? It's going to be hard to walk into some of these million dollar deals right out of the gate without any sort of track record. Um, but you also don't want to start with the $12,000 deals because you're going to be hurting cats. So, you know, yeah. what we did there was kind of start with those fifty to $100,000 deals. You close a few of those, then you work your way up market. And then the only way you want those $12,000 deals is when you've automated your product to a point where you can make it self-service. And then you start selling down market. So first, figure out what your market is. Second, figure out how to segment that market. And third, figure out what segments you're going to address first and go there. So it's the difference between total market uh, or it's the difference between a market, total addressable market, and service addressable market. And, and that's sort of like uh, when we look at our investment philosophy and what Rock River is trying to do, you know, we, we typically look for companies who have, you know, raised a little bit of capital and then have two to three referenceable customers, have, have you know, two or three of those $30,000 a year SaaS deals. And then we, you know, invest typically a million dollars and we're trying to get that company from two to three customers to 10, 15, 20 customers. 
um, and help them, you know, with that sales process and sales cycle that, that Andy sort of went through. His expertise at Channel IQ and at Fetch and at 426 Solutions, you know, really is, is valuable to those entrepreneurs in helping that process, accelerate that process. Well, now you mentioned at least your your website says that you're looking for companies that can disrupt. How do you determine what a company is that's disruptive? I mean, who says that factor? Because everybody will say, I'm disruptive. This is cool. This is neat. Yeah. This is new. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that, that is, that is the challenge. And that's, that's what makes, that's what creates unicorns. You know, we're just looking for companies that have a, a different twist or a different angle that, you know, will disrupt, will, you know, is the better Kleenex, is the better mousetrap, is something that, you know, we can scale. And that, that goes back to Andy's point about scaling quickly. You know, disruptive ideas will scale quickly and grow fast. It's sort of, sort of looking like that. Well, I mean, I, I think when we look at companies, first and foremost, we're trying to figure out, is the idea novel? If you're just making a slightly better widget, in most cases, we don't find that that disruptive and we don't think that that has the growth potential that we're looking for. So first step is, is this novel? Are you truly solving an existing problem in a totally novel way or are you solving a new problem that nobody's ever solved? It's got to be something really novel and really, you know, unique in, in some cases. If it's just a slightly better widget, it's really hard to make an investment there. And a lot of times, a lot of times we'll, we'll chat with those, the first two to three customers and actually ask the customers that question. How, how novel is this? How, you know, what have you seen in the competitive landscape? Why did you decide to buy this software product or, or, or service? What is it about it? And, and that's sort of insightful as well. How bad it is. I need to interrupt you and ask you to hold your thoughts for just a second. We're going to take a quick break for station identification. And a word from a couple of our sponsors, but stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back with the co-founders of Rock River Capital. This is Doris Nagel, and you're listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. With us this week are our guests from Rock River Capital Partners, and we've been talking about some of the kinds of companies that they look for when they're funding companies. Talk a little bit about the process of actually going through and doing due diligence and evaluating companies that are potential prospects? Well, I mean, it's it's essentially kind of a funnel process, you know, the same way that, you know, some of our companies would uh, look at their sales pipeline as a funnel, right? You get leads, those leads are then qualified. You, you take a qualified lead and, and do some sort of demo, then it goes into. So anyways, that's a typical sales pipeline. I think we have a similar pipeline, right? We find leads in companies. Either we find them or they find us, then we have to qualify that lead. And, and a lot of times that is by looking through some sort of pitch deck, but there's some sort of printed material usually that we start with. Then um, if what we see in that material looks interesting, then the next step is usually a phone call. From that phone call, we try to assess, you know, just some basics, some fundamentals of the company. You know, from that phone call, then it would lead to an in-person discussion and then, you know, ideally the goal is to get to a term sheet. Once we have a term sheet, then we start the diligence process, which is really trying to flesh out all of our assumptions, right? We assume that we can sell this for this much money. Let's get on the phone with three or four customers and, and see what they say about that. Uh, we assume that it's going to take 500K to build some of these features that we think are necessary. Let's go look at the software and figure out if we think 500,000 is a reasonable number to build that. So it's things like that. Once we have the term sheet, we're flushing out assumptions. You know, we've probably looked at over 800 to 900 companies in Wisconsin and around the Midwest. And, and oh, typically, wow. you know, we like to we like to track companies. So we'll, we'll, we'll do the early stage, like maybe an initial discussion and look at their information. And then if, if we like it right away, we're obviously we'll write a term sheet and do more work. But a lot of times we just like to watch and see. You know, they might be a little too early for us. They might not have enough customers or revenues, or they might need to build a product, you know, some sort of feature and a product. So we do like to track them and, and get their quarterly or monthly updates. And, and that really helps us kind of see how, you know, kind of handicap how they can execute on their strategy and how they're doing. So have there been companies or do you do you see there probably are likely going to be companies who came to you, pitched to you, you said, eh, you need X and Y and Z, then come talk to us. Do you think that there are some that then would be great prospects? Yeah, I mean, we just, the last investment we just did was exactly that. 
you know, Jason Weaver, who's a great entrepreneur, he's, he's done, you know, he's had several exits. He's a smart guy. He met with me about a year and a half ago in a coffee shop about a company that he wanted to build called AirDeck. But at that point, it wasn't even a company. He, he had kind of this PowerPoint slide and he had this idea and he goes, you know what? I'm having a really hard time pitching. The whole idea came from him trying to pitch investors. He goes, I'm having a hard time pitching investors because they want to see my deck, but my deck requires audio over it. I have to explain some of these slides and get my sales pitch out there, but I can't do that if I just email them a deck. So I want to build this platform called AirDeck that allows me to put audio and video over documents like a PowerPoint slide. So I said, well, that's really interesting, but, you know, your PowerPoint's pretty strong, and Adobe's got PDF, and there's all these things out there, these headwinds that you're going to have to compete against. I just, you know, I'm just not sure. I, I would go try to get a couple of customers and, and use them as a reference to, you know, help figure out if there's a market for this and what features are needed. So this was like a year and a half, two years ago. And then he gets his company going and COVID hits, right? Where all of a sudden the entire world goes virtual. And this product that was interesting before is all of a sudden super interesting. Right. So we, we immediately get on the phone with Jason. We're like, Jason, we think this is going to be awesome. Let's go do a big round. And, and at that point he had already gotten 10, 20, 50 customers and he was really starting to figure out what features needed and what customers were using it for. And it was just perfect timing, but that's a great example of. Somebody we met with two years ago, I didn't really see it then, and it progressed over time, and he, you know, it was just the right time. I mean, that goes back to our learnings from, from fundraising as as well. You know, when we were, we were out here we fundraising, but we were also meeting with companies, and when we meet with those companies, even we can't, even if we couldn't invest, we gave them advice. We 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 sort of, you know, tried to be valuable resources. And I, and I think another one of the companies, another one of the deals we did in June was a company called Smart Care in Eau Claire. And it's a company that we met with, you know, a year, year and a half before we invested in. And the founder was really struggling on how to create, you know, website hits and, and a sales funnel. And we let him down, you know, working on his, you know, his search engine optimization and, and blogging and getting free Google search referrals. And, you know, we ended up investing because he came back to us and he said, hey, I, I like what you guys did. It was working. I, I'd really like to have you guys involved with the company. So it was a deal, you know, potentially we wouldn't have gotten if we hadn't volunteered our time and, and helped the entrepreneurs grow at the early stage. Before we started recording, you, Andy, were talking about the importance of a management team. And that's a theme that I think other guests have talked about. Talk about what you're looking for in a management team. Yeah, I mean, you know, all startups, you know, I, I've said this a hundred times, I'll say it again, but they all come down to two things. Can you build it and can you sell it? So we really like to see from a management team, you know, ideally three legs of the stool. It's kind of the, the CEO, the CTO and the, and the head of sales, you know, the CRO or VP of finance. And, and those three people, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the optimal scenario, but that almost never happens. Uh, usually the companies that we see have one or two of those. And we're really trying to find teams that can build what the market needs and can sell it. And those are two different motions sometimes, um, but that's what we're looking for. So how do you help companies and and work with them who maybe don't have all three of the legs on the stool? I mean, I'm envisioning that could be kind of a delicate process sometimes because maybe there's a great CEO, but is brother-in-law or his best buddy is the chief technical officer and just maybe isn't cutting it. How do you deal with some of those challenges? Very delicately. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, there's times where, you know, we're pretty blunt and, and I'm sure, I'm sure we have offended people. And, you know, there's times where we, we just kind of flat out say, look, you know, you're not doing a good job selling this. You need to find somebody who can. Or, you know, I mean, there are times where, where we said, hey, we really like the product, that we really like the company, but we're just not sure that, you know, you're the right person to run it. And, you know, those are hard conversations to have, but it doesn't mean we won't have them. Um, and, and, and sometimes I, as most of the deals too have board of directors, too, so we can, you know, influence the board and, and kind of talk with, you know, if it's us or other board members and sort of form a consensus view that maybe the CEO or CTO needs to be replaced. But I think um, in most cases, what we see is, hey, you're doing a great job. Why don't you focus on 
product and let's go hire somebody to do the sales side. You, you know, you're doing a great job building, but you're just not doing a great job selling. So in most cases, we're augmenting a staff team, uh, you know, a management team. We're not replacing. It's pretty mm-hmm. rare that we're replacing at this early stage. So things that we do to help is, you know, we do help recruit via our network. We're always looking for talented people that we can place into companies. We have recruiting you know, agencies that, that we work with regularly and we're happy to connect our portfolio companies to them. We also just have no problem diving in ourselves and saying, hey, let's look at this sales process together and see if we can help. Let's look at this software development process together and see if we can help. So, you know, we'll do whatever it takes. I mean, in most cases, we're just trying to do the right thing and make the team better. Yeah. Talk about some of the other companies that are in your portfolio. Sure. Yeah, one of the other ones that's doing well is called SIFT um, Medical. SIFT helps healthcare systems track reimbursements. Um, the company signed a big customer last year and now is working with some, some of the largest healthcare systems in the U.S. to, to improve their working capital cycles, and uh, it's doing really well. And that was a, a company initially, I think Andy served on the board before we had closed the fund, he was you know, a board member for another, a smaller venture capital fund, and, and we really got to, to know that team. And one, we just kind of, after we closed the fund, you know, we invested. Any other companies in the portfolio? I mean, what what do they have in common that, looking back, you can see? Um, so we, we did the final close about two years ago. We've invested in eight companies. We're working on deal number nine now. I'd say they all have some of the things we've touched on before. They all are fast growing. They all have potential to have, you know, big growth, big revenues in, in big total addressable markets. I think all the entrepreneurs are are great. We've been really impressed and 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 excited to, to work with the entrepreneurs. I mean they're all software. They all and they all happen to be based in, in Wisconsin as well. I mean I think they're also all solving real world problems. One of the things that you know I love is in general we don't look for technology that that's needs a problem to solve. We look for somebody that recognized a problem in an industry and created a solution to solve that. Those usually sell much better than, hey, I've got the best widget in town. Let's figure out what to do with it. So almost all of these companies are solving great problems, and it it makes it really exciting. You said you've looked at probably 800 companies. That's a lot of companies. And I'm sure you've seen some pretty common mistakes with companies that pitched to you. Talk about some of the most common mistakes and advice you might have for companies looking to pitch to maybe you, but really to any kind of investor. Yeah. So, I mean, we both got our list of of things. You know, I would say first and foremost, start with the problem that you're solving and, and why this problem needs to be solved. I think a lot of times people start with maybe their background, their resume, which is great. That's useful. I want to know that, but, but that's not the best starting point. So start with like, why, why are we here? What's the problem we're solving? The other big challenge that I see, like I said before, is I see people focusing on niche markets and, you know, niche markets might be a nice beachhead to start in, but you got to show us why this is going to be, why this is going to scale. Why is this a big market? Why is this company going to grow? A very specific niche market is not going to really get investor too excited. I would say the last thing that I that I see that's pretty common is setting, you know, valuations on things when it's way too early to do so. So I think too often we see people come into our office and say, this is going to be huge. You know, we're raising a million dollar round on a $20 million pre-money valuation. And, you know, we think you should get in. And And what I say is, look, even if I love your idea, before we go any further, even if I love your idea, even if I want to invest, if I put that amount of money in at that valuation, the amount of equity I'm getting in your company is going to make it insanely difficult for me to get a return. So it just steers the entire conversation in the wrong direction. So what I would say, my advice would be sell the investor on the problem, then sell them on why you're the right people to solve that problem. And don't even really discuss valuation too much. Let that come out in the term sheet. You know, let that come out when you get there. I mean, I think that's a great list. I'd add to that too, that, you know, when we meet with founders, confidence is great, but sometimes arrogance is bad. And, and, and we sort of, when we meet with founders, it's really a relationship. You know, if there's not a personality fit between us and them, it's, it makes it tough. You know, these are, these are companies we're going to 
want to have weekly or monthly or quarterly conversations for the next, you know, three to five years. So I, I think coming in and, and being confident but not cocky is, is also um, key. You know, it's a really hard balance, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. a lot of entrepreneurs are so excited and, you know, the idea and the company is them. And it's very hard for them not to take a lot of stuff personally. Have you seen that too? Yeah, many times. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we never, we want to give constructive feedback. I mean, we have the advantage of seeing 800 companies this year, right? So our pattern recognition looks a little different, you know, so we, we like to give constructive feedback. Hey, you know, we like what you're doing here, but I would explain your addressable market more or, um, Hey, we don't think that that's the right beachhead and here's why, you know, whatever it is. Right. And it's really hard sometimes to give that feedback and not upset somebody who's spent their, you know, they've really dedicated their entire life to this thing. So it's, it's a, it's a real balance. We do our best with it, but I'm sure we've made mistakes. Yes. I mean, some VC funds will just, you know, write a check or make an investment and sort of walk away. You know, that's not really our, our mantra. We really like to invest and be mentors to entrepreneurs, advisors, friends, you know, the people that they call when they have a problem that keeps them up in the middle of the night, you know, that's our value add. And that's how we think we can help. And, you know, we just have opinions, but like Andy mentioned, I mean, we've both done this for a while now and your pattern recognition becomes really, really good. And you become attuned to things that you you see happening over and over again. And you get frustrated when an entrepreneur just doesn't believe you or digs their heels in the sand and thinks they're right. It's just, so, you know, there's, 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 there's you know, like I said, there's tons of opportunities we've seen. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a quick pass. If, if you, if you just don't have that fit, the personality fit, it's kind of a, one of the reasons to pass. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You've, you're very good at segueing into my next questions because I was going to ask you both what you enjoy most about working in venture capital and having your own venture capital fund. And I think Chris, you started to allude to it, which is really, it sounds like you love being part of the story. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, it goes back. I mean, that's what I'm a big brothers and big sisters of Dean County. It's, it's mentoring. It's, you know, it's, it's helping. It's working with entrepreneurs to create great companies, being exposed to new ideas and collaborating and, and all of that sort of stuff. That's good things. That, that gets me excited. You know, helping build an ecosystem, being, you know, on, on the ground floor of startup, a startup company that could turn into Epic or, or Exact Sciences, you know, is really, you know, exciting for me. I kind of geek out over the business cases themselves, right? Being in venture capital, we get inundated with different business models from everything you can imagine, right? And I just love seeing all the ways that you can make money out there. You know, this is this kind of been a long standing, you know, thing for me. I, I just I have a ton of respect for entrepreneurs in every walk of life that have figured out a way to make money. I mean, I'll give you an example. My wife's grandfather started this manufacturing company 65 years ago, and they basically make aerosol cans. You know, he built this amazing company, but I'm just sitting there going, you know, you built this great company and, and you make cans. And then I get to go <laughs> and then I get to go to work and I see these amazing software companies and some of them are selling a piece of software to healthcare. And then the next guy is selling a piece of software that he gets paid one penny per click online and he needs millions of clicks. It's just it's an incredible. It's so fun to see all of these different models and to think through the math and to talk with the entrepreneur about how to scale it. And for me, that's just by far the most exciting is to really just geek out on every possible business model you can see. You know, it's interesting. I'm guessing that both of you have really seen the ecosystem grow because you've looked at 800 companies. I have no idea how many more you probably chatted up with at various networking events. And, of course, people come to you because you have money, and that's a hot commodity when you're an entrepreneur. How have you seen the ecosystem grow and change in Wisconsin and the Midwest since you started? Yeah, definitely, um, you know, more excitement. I, I think, I, you know, I was in Chicago kind of early days, and, and there wasn't, you know, I was in finance and hedge fund, but there really wasn't much talk about startups and, and sort of as, uh, you know, from 2008 to 2015, it just – became the rage in, in Chicago and it is exciting to see, you know, from the Groupon exit or Clever Safe. I mean, there's been some great companies that, that really created a lot of buzz 
and created a, a bunch of VC funds in Chicago. We've sort of seen that in Wisconsin as well. You know, there's been more and more venture capital funds start up and be successful. There's been, you know, exits. I think exact scientists in Madison, they, the, the guys created a multi-billion dollar company that got people excited. It wasn't a VC investment, but it was, you know, a penny stock that, you know, just took off. Um, and then the corporations, the, the, the big fortune 500 or a thousand companies in, in Wisconsin have created venture capital groups. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, the UW system, Marquette, um, some of the other universities have started entrepreneurial programs and, and accelerators and, you know, incubators. Um, not to mention you know, the generator guy, generator in, in, in Madison, Milwaukee. They've created a, an amazing ecosystem and just exploded their programs, you know, throughout Wisconsin and throughout the Midwest. Yeah. So just, just, you know, it's, it's how we're going to drive the economies in the Midwest from, you know, industrial manufacturing to technology to, to software and, you know, drive the economies and create companies and, and vibrant communities. You know, Chris touched on a lot of them. I think, you know, Joe and Troy, what they've done with Generator, they put a great spotlight on, you know, company creation. Um, I think that's where we need more of that. We need more company creation and, and we've got to get people thinking about, you know, large companies, not just niche companies and, and specific. And, you know, how do we get large VC backed companies? And then, you know, the next thing we're really trying to do is get those big exits. I think that's the next step. You know, we need billion dollar exits like Chicago's had, like, you know, Silicon Valley. We need some billion dollar exits. As much as I like Epic and Exact Science, those aren't exits, right? Those right. were not VC backed. Those companies will really never be sold. One's already public and one probably will never be sold. So we need to create some billion dollar companies. And what that'll do is, is create a bunch of millionaires to go around and start new companies. And it's a flywheel effect. You need the next Google, right? The next Microsoft, the next Dell, something like well, that. I mean, that'd be great, but we don't even need, I mean, those are, those are multi-billion dollar companies. I mean, the, they call them unicorns for a reason. When you get to that billion dollar benchmark, you're a unicorn, right? And, you know, Chris mentioned CleverSafe in Chicago. I think that's just, it's a good example because it was not a hundred billion dollar exit. It was a billion, right? It was a great exit, you know, and I don't know the exact number, so I might be off, but it was, you know, it was a unicorn and it, and it went really well. More of those would be great. You know, we don't necessarily need to create Apple or Microsoft, but creating the next root insurance company, Drive Capital just went public with that for a ton. I'm trying to think of some of the other unicorns we've had in the Midwest. Uh, exact Target in Indianapolis, right? Sold to Groupon, point maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Groupon, was, I think when they went public, it was like $6 billion or so. But, I mean, I guess Exact Target's probably the best example of what an exit can do to a city. I mean, that's in Indianapolis. He sold it for $3.5 billion. Scott Dorsey is not only one of the smartest people I've ever met, but also one of the most humble and just amazing people. He started this great company, sold it to Salesforce. What did Salesforce do? They set up their second United States headquarters in Indianapolis because of this acquisition. The entire ecosystem took off after that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those exits can have a huge impact. It's also the, you know, for, for the entrepreneurs, you know, the, one of the most successful, you know, successful companies are, are, are usually generated from repeat entrepreneurs. If, if, if somebody has, you know, Mark Cuban has his broadcast doc, you know, a smaller sale and encourage broadcast.com, you know, you have that $15 million exit. The next one's a $500 million exit. And then you have the billion dollar exits. It's those repeat entrepreneurs, you know, getting, getting them exits, getting them capital. You know, as, as Andy mentioned, you know, you create a bunch of millionaires. They're willing to leave their, their safe you know, corporate jobs to go try to start unicorns, try to start whatever their passion is, start a, start a yeah. software company or, or build a widget or build a better mousetrap or, you know, whatever it is. It just, or, it just gives people help, freedom. Yeah. Or help the investors to venture capital firms like Rock River Capital, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So what do you think Rock River will look like in three to five years if you're successful? Well, in three to five years, Hopefully we're on fund number two. So we'd like fund number one to be, um, we'll probably still be following the existing portfolio companies in fund number one with, with follow on investment. But in general, we would be on fund number two. I'd like to see fund number two with a similar investment thesis, but a larger fund and a larger geography. So, you know, we have kind of a 25 ish million dollar fund right now. We're focused very much in Wisconsin. 
And then we're focused very much in that seed stage, which is call it 500K to 1.5 million on the first round. So I'd like to see the next fund be, you know, kind of 50 million in size. I'd like to see it keep a similar investment thesis, but be able to grow the, the portfolio companies and, and maybe do some larger rounds as well and change our geography, not just be Wisconsin, but start looking more in Minneapolis and Chicago. And we already do a lot to partner with funds outside of Wisconsin. The last investment we did, we had a fund from, you know, we had Rise of the Rest and we had Cultivation Capital and we partner with other investment funds all the time. I would like to be able to enter their geographies and partner with them, not just invite them into my geography. Chris, anything to add to that? No, I think that was a, that was great. One last question. We're almost out of time. If a company is interested in seeing if Rock River Capital is a good fit for their needs or they think they might be a good fit for you, what's the best way for them to start the process and reach out to you? Check out our website, rockrivercapital.com. There's a, a link to uh, send us an email. Also, check in our profiles on LinkedIn uh, under Rock River Capital. It's usually, at, and or obviously, feel free if, if you know when when the world goes back to in-person meetings. We're at you know most of the big conferences in in Chicago and Madison and Minneapolis and the Midwest. You know, feel free to stop by and, and chat us up. Chris and Andy, thank you so much for your time and for being on the show this week. It was great having you. Thanks a lot, yeah, thanks. thanks so much for listening. And thanks again, especially to my guest today, Andy Walker and Chris Ekstrom, the co-founders and principals of Rock River Capital. You can find more helpful information and resources on my website, globalocityservicesplural.com. There's a library there of tools, blogs, podcasts, and other resources. My door is always open for comments. I'd love to hear from you. Email me anytime at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakes, plural, lakesradio.org. Be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern Time. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneurial.